We'll spend almost all of our time in the book of Revelation. So just, um, if you're not there, we can turn to Revelation chapters 5 to 7. And uh, I'll, give you, I'll take you on a guided tour through these chapters. And I promised in my email that I, wouldn't, I would give you some practical stuff and that it wouldn't be freaky, okay? So you can relax. I'm not going to preach anything freaky, I, I hope. Um, I mean, if you find it freaky, then you have the problem, because <laughs> we're not going to get into anything too wild. Okay, um, there's a title of the Messiah given in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. And I think we've heard this so many times, sometimes we just kind of rattle it off in, in uh, praise songs or whatever, and we don't stop to actually think about what it means. In, Reve- in Revelation 5, 5, Yeshua is called the Lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Uh, when you think of a lion, like what, what are some words that describe a lion to you? A ruler. A ruler. Ferocious. Ferocious. Fierce. Fierce, yeah. Strong and powerful. Strong and powerful. Has a roar like no other. Yeah, he has a roar like no other. A predator. A predator. <laughs> a stalker. A stalker. <laughs> King of the forest in the top of the food chain, yeah. Basically, nobody's trying to eat him. Nobody's trying to eat him. <laughs> this is good. Tirza, I'll, I'll, I'll come over here so we can hear that together. Tirza, what does the lion say? Roar. That's right, Tirza. Lions roar. Yeah, that's right. Lions are. Lions are indomitable. They're, they're commanding. They have a very commanding presence. You don't just ignore a lion when it walks into the room. And um, that's, that's a picture of Yeshua as the messianic leader, as the, as the Mashiach, the, the king Messiah. Um, there's a second half to this. It says he's a lion specifically from the tribe of Judah. What would that mean to those readers in that, in that context? It simply means he's Jewish. Yeah. To say you're from the tribe of Judah means you're Jewish, right? So like uh, Judah in Hebrew is Yehuda. Everybody say Yehuda. Yeah. And if you say you're Jewish, you say Yehudi. Yeah. Yehudi, it means Jewish, right? So it's like, it's like saying that Yeshua is the Jewish lion, the true Jewish lion. It's like everything that a nation could ever long for in a leader, Yeshua is. Have there been false Jewish lions in Jewish history? Maybe messianic pretenders or would-bes that turned out to be a, not the real thing. Oh yeah. Um, here, here's an example. In, um, after the, the Second Temple was destroyed in 70 CE, about six decades after that, around 130 CE, um, there was a man named Shimon Bar Kosiba. Um, they called him Bar Kochba. That was like his, um, his, that's what they called him, it means son of the star. It was an allusion to a prophecy in Genesis that says the Messiah would kind of be this type of person. And he 
um, there was a famous rabbi named Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva said, This man is the Messiah. We, we must all swear our allegiance to him and we're going to follow him and he is going to throw the yoke of the Romans off of us and liberate Israel. And, uh, and Bar Kokhba, he was, he was a brilliant military commander. He, was a lo- he had a lot of these lion-like characteristics. He was authoritative. He, he had a commanding presence. He was very, very strong. Um, he, he, he won the allegiance of a lot of the people of, of Israel. And uh, he led them in battle, and he did. He he, he spearheaded a, a revolt against Rome, and um, that revolt was actually successful in its first year or two. They did drive the Romans back. They won several decisive victories. Um, they started minting their own coins, which is something that a sovereign national entity does. There's even evidence that they were in the early stages of rebuilding the temple. Um, they also killed people who believed that Yeshua was the Messiah and not Bar Kokhba. Uh, this would be an example of a Jewish lion who was a, a would-be, who was a pretender, who ultimately turned out to be an imposter. So, and, the, and there are other men like that in Jewish history. Guys that kind of got the hopes of the Jewish people up and then dashed them. And uh, Yeah, Shabbatai Tzvi was another false messiah in the 1600s. Actually, actually, there's an embarrassing chapter of them in, in Jewish history. But um, they just wanted to point out, Yeshua is the real Jewish line. And you know, the, 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 some of the deepest hopes in the hearts of the people of Israel today will be met when they see Yeshua and when He comes through for them. Because He is coming back as a lion. All of those things we just talked about. Someone with, with like, uh, when I think of a lion, I think of like crunching power in their jaws. Like you just, I wonder what the foot pounds per square inch of a lion's jaws can like can exert on something like bone crunching power. And when Yeshua comes back, like he is coming back with sheer power, with absolute authority. He will be the the, the dictator um, in 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 the messianic era. Thankfully, he is going to be a God appointed dictator, and he's going to be very benevolent and kind and uh, loving to his people and those who will willingly surrender to his rule. Okay, here's the surprise. So we hear about this lion, right? Next verse, massive paradox. So he looks and he doesn't see a lion. He sees this like little lamb, like a little baby sheep. And have you ever seen like a little baby sheep? They're frail, right? They're really frail. They look like they're just going to fall over. They're, they're kind of teetery-tottery. And, uh, and it looks like he was killed too. What does it say? As if he'd been slain. Like... That must have been a shocker, hey? You'd think that in heaven, at least, Yeshua would be pictured as like this massive, like bone-crunching, authoritative ruler. And yet it's still, what does that tell us? It tells us, you know, Yeshua, He was still humble. He was still gentle. And, wow. I just, I, I think there's a picture there of like, like, okay, you know, that's Yeshua, but I think on a practical level, maybe that's a picture of real power in the kingdom of God. Or like genuine leadership. You know, sometimes people will come and it'll be like really authoritarian or, or in a really hard manner or maybe in pride or whatever. And I think God just wants to knock all that stuff down in, in our, our lives and in the body of Messiah. And uh, I'm, really, I'm really looking for men that God is raising up who are like, who have that lamb-like, those lamb-like characteristics of like humility and tenderness and... Even having like a frail side so that God can be strong. I'm looking for that. 
Yeah. Um, here's something cool. Uh, I'm going to give you a Hebrew insight here. In the next verse, it says that this lamb, um, he's, he's pictured symbolically as having seven horns, which is like a picture of power. Like, if you can imagine being a bull and having a big set of horns, like, you really use those things. Those are your tools, you know? Nobody messes with your horns. And... Um, Yeshua, it says, has seven of those. So it's a symbol of like the anointing on him being a very powerful thing. And it also is pictured by seven eyes. Now here's the thing in Hebrew. Does anyone know what the Hebrew word for eye is? Genevieve. Ayn. Ayn. Everybody say ayn. Actually, it sounds very similar to I in English, doesn't it? Ayn. Yes, that's one of the letters in the alphabet. That's right. And um, ayn also means something else. And in this context, it means I, right? But in Hebrew, often a word will have a couple meanings. And if you look at the, the different meanings, it gives you a fuller understanding of the concept. Ein in Hebrew also means a fountain of water or a spring. All right, so Ein means an eye, and it also means a fountain or spring of water. Uh, there are lots of place names, if you read through the Hebrew Bible, that are like, Ein this or Ein that. Um, can you think of any off the top of your head? Ein Mishpat, I think, would be an example. Um, I don't know. Anyway, there are lots of them. Keep an eye out for them. But that's a place where there was a fountain or a spring of water. All right. So the idea there is like of a fountain or a spring of water is a source. It's a source of water. It's, a, it's the point from whence water uh, originates. And so we can, it gives us a real understanding into the anointing. Because the anointing is the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God comes on someone, that's His anointing. The Spirit of God on Yeshua is the anointing. I mean, that's what Christ means, right? It means anointed one. So like the hallmark of Yeshua is the anointed one, the ultimate anointed one by God. And the anointing is pictured by eyes, which can mean like eyes like this, or it can have the idea in Hebrew of being a source. All right, a source. So what are some of the seven spirits of God as listed in Isaiah? Anybody list some of them? Yeah, power. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge, knowledge, counsel, and the fear of Him. That's right. Wow, we just nailed them all. Okay, so the idea there is like the Spirit as the anointing on a person is the source of this in their lives. So let's say that you operate in spiritual power to see restoration or healing come or whatever. The idea in Hebrew is His Spirit is the source of that power. So, Or if you have like a supernatural level of um, understanding of a situation or something in the Word of God or information. Just, you just su- supernaturally know something. Almost like ESP, but like the Holy Spirit type. That's a word of knowledge. That in, in Hebrew, that has a concept of like, you have this ability and the source of it is a spirit in you. A Joseph would be an example. He could interpret dreams by word of knowledge. The source of that, that like that, Ability was, was the Spirit of God. So that's kind of the idea of eyes in, in Hebrew as picturing the anointing. It's like from whence it flows. Um, in 5 verse 8, we learn that a lot, of this, a lot of these objects and this vision are symbolic of stuff in our lives that we do. So for instance, you have these golden bowls of incense. It's like, well, that's cool. Yeah, I'd like to be able to smell that. I wonder what it smells like. But then he goes on to explain, actually, this is a picture of something that you do. This is a picture of when you pray. So remember that. That's an interpretive key. Because, okay, you know, we read through the Torah every year. It's a lot of reading. And we read about, like, the tabernacle and the furniture in the tabernacle and all of these different uh, apparatus that they would use. And it's really easy to be like, okay, that's cool, but I've never seen that stuff and they're not using it today. And how is that relevant to my life? And this is what we can remember. 
It's a picture of something. So the big question is when we read through the Torah to ask, what is this a picture of in my life? How is this practical? So that's just one really cool example. That's excellent. Like, yeah, a complete power and vision symbolized by seven. Kind of like how the lion is at the top of the food chain, and etc. Eh? Yeah. In verse 9, man, this, if there's anything in this passage that grips my heart, this is, this is it. It says, Yeshua is worthy. Why? Because He purchased for God with His blood people. So, Yeshua bought people at the highest price with the most precious thing, with His very blood, which is His life. From every tribe and people and nation and tongue. So like every nation and tribe of people in that, those nations, every ethnicity, every language on the planet, Yeshua paid for people with His own blood, with His precious life. And that's why He's worthy. And um, how many of you are familiar with the Moravian movement? It started in actually in the 1400s, and then in the it was in the 1700s they really got geared up. They had they had an experience as a community, much like the early believers on the day of, of Shavuot, Pentecost, and as a result, that that's what started a prayer watch in their community that lasted over a hundred years. Some of you are probably familiar with that. Um, they began sending people to other nations to preach the gospel, knowing full well that many of them, most of them, would never come back. Can you imagine, like, standing on a boat and and waving goodbye to your family members, knowing you'd never see them again, and going across the ocean to preach the gospel. Um, that was actually that was cutting edge. At that time, there was almost no such thing as people doing that. Um, the attitude of a lot of people was, you know, if God wants to save those nations, then He'll have predestined them, and He can save them. But, you know, we don't really have to do anything. But the Moravian movement was powerful. And they had that, like, that missional vision. And they did something about it. These people were so radical, they would sell, their, sell themselves into slavery and then go on slave ships to, for instance, the Caribbean. And they would work brutally hard on plantations until they died. Just so they could preach the gospel to slaves on that plantation. Reach people that would never otherwise be reached. But the, the, the motto of the Moravians, this was their motto, this was the banner under which they marched, to win for the Lamb that was slain the reward of His sufferings. Like, that was what the Moravian movement lived and literally died for. To win for the Lamb that was slain the reward for His sufferings. And it's still so true today. You know, we look, at, we look at the people here in our city or in our province. We look at the Jewish community around the world. And we can remember, Yeshua paid the highest price for these people. And we get to be co-workers with Him in seeing them come to the Father and brought into the kingdom. So that's, that's a great thing to pray for people. You know, uh, many of us in our community, we're praying for people, hopefully all of us, on a daily basis. We have specific people. They're like our salvation hit list. And we pray for them every day to come to faith in Yeshua. And um, each of us knows who those people are. This is a great thing to be praying for those people. Father, Yeshua shed His blood for this person. I pray that the price that He paid for this person would not be in vain. That they would come to Him because He is worthy. He deserves this person in His kingdom. He wants this person in His inheritance, Father. So, so bring them in. We can pray things along these lines knowing that Yeshua deserves this. And you know what? That's powerful. When you just pray stuff like, you know, God, I, I hope you do this for this person, and this would be really nice. It's kind of, it's lame. Okay? But when you pray from the perspective of Yeshua deserves 
this person in his kingdom because he paid the ultimate price for this person. It's all of a sudden not about what you want. It's all about the worthiness of the son, the lamb that was slain. And that is a powerful uh, perspective from which to pray. Um, In 5 verse 9, it goes on to say that Yeshua has made this multinational people that he has bought with his blood from every ethnicity. It says that he's made them to be a kingdom and priests. In Hebrew, that term is mamlechet kohanim. You guys know kohanim, right? Priests, mamlechet is a kingdom. This is the term that God used in Exodus like 19 and 20 in reference to Israel. He said, if you'll enter into this covenant with me, if you'll listen to my voice, this is what you're going to be. And it's really cool that this term that was originally addressed to national Israel is now addressed to all of God's people brought into his kingdom through the covenant of Yeshua's blood. See, okay, I, I, I'm going like, to address something that's more a question in the Messianic Jewish movement right now. Um, in, some, in some streams of the Messianic movement, like there's more equality. It's kind of, there's an understanding that all of God's people are part of the covenant. And so Jewish identity is important and it's something to be guarded and supported. But at the same time, Gentiles, like people from non-Jewish backgrounds, are just as much members of the covenant. I, I call it inclusion theology based on passages like Ephesians 2, where Paul says, you were far off from God and Messiah and the covenants of promise and the commonwealth of Israel, but now you're not. Notice he said covenants of promise. So not just the new covenant, those are previous covenants. All right. Then there's also, there's also a stream of thought in the Messianic movement that more emphasizes the distinction between Jews and Gentiles in the body Messiah. Um, sometimes that's called bilateral ecclesiology. It has the concept of like, hey, Jewish people should maintain their distinctiveness and just kind of have their own communities of just Jewish people. So if you're a Jew- Jewish believer, you should be part of a synagogue that is only open to Jewish people. And um, you know, there, there are places like that where if you're a Gentile, you can visit a Messianic Jewish synagogue and you can visit, but you can't become a member. You're not really welcome to stay long term. And I, I, understand, I understand where people are coming from with that in terms of like a missional focus on, on representing Messiah to the Jewish people and having an authentic Jewish community and stuff. But sometimes I feel like that goes too far. And, and you know, sometimes people will even say, well, you know, if you say that Gentiles are members of Israel, the commonwealth of Israel too, that sounds like replacement theology. People will say, you know, that's replacement theology. It's getting too close. And I, I have hesitation with that because I, I read the writings of the apostles and they say stuff like this. That, like this is a term for national Israel. Mamlachet konim. Uh, the uh, kingdom of priests. And yet here, this is being re- applied to all ethnicities who are in the kingdom. This is being applied to a multinational entity. And that's not replacement theology. What is it? I would call it inclusion theology. It's not that all of these ethnicities are eclipsing Jewish status. It's not that they're, they're kicking Israel out of the picture. They're, they're coming into the commonwealth of Israel. They have become a part of Maybe even a part of the like Jewish community life. Yeah. That's how I would see it. Here's another example. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, You, speaking to non-Jewish believers, you are a kingdom of priests, a holy royal, nation. Royal that, that Hebrew term is goy kadosh. Yeah. That's the term that was used again at the foot of Mount Sinai when God brought Israel into covenant. And now he's saying, You guys, you Gentiles, you are a goy kadosh. You are a holy nation. Wow. Holy race, I think, is how some translations render it. So again, I mean, it sounds... You know what? Some people today, if they read that, with the mindset they have, they'd be like, that's replacement theology. 
Simon Peter is a replacement theologian. No, he isn't. He's an inclusion theologian. He's, he's welcoming them in. So there's a big difference there. And I, I, I've hit on that before, but I want to continue to emphasize that because we're laying a, ground, a theological groundwork in our community for that inclusion theology. Uh, I'll share that another... Okay, I'll, I'll share it in brief because it is cool. Um, I was driving up to our, where we were living at my grandparents' farm in the Blaine Lake area and I crossed Petrovka Bridge right before we moved, it was the day after my 30th birthday, and there on the right-hand side of the road was a big 4x8 sheet of plywood with big letters, big letters spray-painted on it, Goy Wedding. Goy Wedding. And okay, there's, you know, Goy is a family last name, so I guess there was some family with the last name of Goy and they were getting married. But Goy also means like, it means a nation in Hebrew and it means a Gentile in Hebrew, right? Yes. So you could kind of read that like, Gentile wedding. I was like, oh, they're probably not going to get married under a chuppah there anyway. But, um, but I, actually, that was kind of like an answer to some stuff that I've been seeking Yeshua about. And I don't even feel like I've plumbed the depths of that yet. But it's just something that he was saying to me. And I'll, I'll, I'll get into more of that later. But I'll just I, I'll share that snapshot with you guys uh, for now. It goes on to say, you've made them to be kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign in heaven. Is that what it says? Verse 10? It says, they will reign upon the earth. That's a smasher, eh? Because, okay, often, um, okay, I'm going to give you an, an example of the difference between the Greek way of thinking and the Hebrew way of thinking. The guys who wrote the Bible had a Hebrew way of thinking, all right? Later, theologians and philosophers came with a Greek way of thinking, and they misinterpreted some stuff. And we're in the process of understanding that in the original context. This is an example. In the Greek way of thinking, you go to heaven, in the afterlife, you, you leave planet Earth, physical matter is evil, um, this existence is just cruddy, and you just want to get out of your body and go to where everything is perfect in the spiritual world. All right? That's kind of a Greek way of thinking. In the Hebrew way of thinking, you don't leave your body and go to God so much as He comes to you. You remember in the beginning, God looked at His whole physical creation and He said, It's very good. So the physical world is very good. Sometimes we read some teachings in the New Testament about the current world system that is under the influence of the evil one, and we think, oh, the world must be evil. It's not talking about the creation, the physical world. It's just talking about the current world order. There's an evil side to that. That's, that's, you know what, that really set me free. In my early 20s, I realized that. It's like, you know what, this earth actually is your home. The world system that we're currently in is not your home, but this earth is your home. Yeshua is coming back to planet earth. He is reigning upon the earth for a thousand years, a solid millennium. Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt under him. The nations are going to be going up to celebrate Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, according to the last chapter in Zechariah. Um, The last eight chapters in Ezekiel describe it. Very physical stuff. And what's going to happen? The glory of God is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the seas, or however that reads. So that's just something to note. His people are going to reign on the earth. It's a, it's a very optimistic outlook, to say the least. And, you know, it's also true that, you know, um, in the interim, from my understanding, when people die, of course they go to be with the Master. Of course there is heaven and, and the saints in heaven and stuff like that. And, you know, but I feel like we're strong on that side. So I'm not negating that. I'm just saying, here's the other side. Planet Earth isn't like, it's not over, it's not over with planet Earth. Yeah. Um, in... 
5 verse 13, this is something I pointed out as we were studying through Hebrews, and we looked at how it says that the angels of God worship Yeshua. In 5 verse 13, it says the Lamb is worthy. That word means deserves. Okay, so whenever it says worthy, it means you deserve something. You're worthy of something. It says the Lamb deserves to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let me ask you, are these expressions of worship, honor, glory, blessing? Yes, they are. We don't just bless anybody. Let's say before we eat, we say, Baruch Atahu, Adonai. We bless God. It's an expression of worship. To honor His name, to give Him glory, these are expressions of worship. This is, prob- this is like, these are acts of worship. And did you notice who it says deserves these acts of worship? Yeshua, the Lamb. That is right. And then it goes on in verse 13. Uh, sorry, that was verse 12 and verse 13. Uh, Hannah alluded to it. It says, there, everybody, like everybody in the universe, it says, this is what they're shouting. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So, just take note of that. Like blessing, glory, and honor in heaven are not just being given to the Father, they are being given equally to the Son. And I'm saying that because there are, there are strains of thought out there, even in the Messianic world, that want to diminish Yeshua, that want to just kind of put Him on the side and not give Him anything. And the book of Revelation is in your face saying Yeshua deserves to be honored, Yeshua deserves to be glorified, and you should bless Yeshua. And if you don't, you have problems. And you have problems with your theology. And you need to examine the spirit that you're operating in, is, is what I would say. Um, so, in our community, we worship Yeshua, we bless Yeshua, we honor Him highly, and we glorify Him, because the Father has glorified Him. And Yeshua said, when we honor the Son, we're honoring the Father who sent Him. So, um, just someone might say, well, you know, it says, um, maybe, maybe those aren't expressions of worship or whatever. And I'll, I'll give you the parallel. There's a parallel verse in um, Revelation chapter 7, verse 12. And um, this time, it's um, the angels, all the angels, so like hundreds of millions of them, um, the elders, four living creatures, they're all falling on their faces. It's a very full-bodied worship. And it says, and they worshipped God, saying, Amen. And then it lists some stuff, be to our God forever and ever. So it says straight up, they're worshipping God, and the, the, these are expressions of worship, these are te- terms of worship, and in this case, they're not actually mentioning the Lamb, so that tells us that when it does include the Lamb, He deserves to be included. He's there. In um, 5 verse 14, this is cool, Revelation 5 14, um, it just says this, and the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. Everybody say Amen. It's kind of cool because that's a Hebrew word, eh? That's a Hebrew word. So in heaven they use at least one Hebrew word that we know of. Well, they say hallelujah too, so we know of at least two. Um, Like amen actually, originally was a term used in the synagogue. It's a Jewish liturgical expression in prayer. So it's kind of cool that like over a billion people in the world, when they say amen, they don't even know it, but they're using a Hebrew word that they learned from the Jewish people. I think that's kind of cool. I'll, I'll just read to you something very, very short along those lines um, from Justin, Justin Martyr. Uh, Justin Martyr was a believer in the, uh, in the, in the 100s. Um, he came from a philosophical background. And I don't you know, necessarily accept all of his views, but it's really helpful reading him to understand where the believers were at. And uh, he's, uh, he's explaining what the gatherings of the early believers looked at. 
And so um, he talks about how when they're going to when they're going to have the elements of the bread and a cup of actually here's something interesting it says um, bread and a cup of wine mixed with water. Remember Charlotte mentioned that uh, a couple of Shabbats ago. Yeah, so I guess in the early believers' gatherings they did that also. Um, maybe mitigate the alcoholic content some. And it says, In taking them, he gives praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Ghost and offers thanks at considerable length for it being counted worthy to receive these things at his hands. And when he's concluded the prayers and thanksgivings, all the people present express their assent by saying, Amen, or Amen. So he says, all the people at these gatherings expressed their assent, it means you know, their agreement, by saying Amen. And then he says, this word Amen answers in the Hebrew language to, and then he uses a Greek word that means, so be it. So he kind of points out, this is a Hebrew word, and this is what it actually means, because he's writing to a, a primarily Greek audience there. So Justin Martyr points out, yeah, that's a Hebrew word that we use in worship. And um, it means, I agree, so be it. Okay, let's, uh, let's look at the next chapter here, Revelation chapter 6. I want to point something out here before we get into it. Because this is where, like, where, thing, where the stuff begins to hit planet Earth. We've kind of been in heaven, and we've been seeing all of this glorious worship, and uh, all of a sudden it's going to start getting phased in on planet Earth, right? And um, it's pictured by a scroll. It's all rolled up, and it's like... This is how I see it. It's like there's a plan. And the plan is written on the scroll. And Yeshua is the one who's worthy to open up the scroll and execute the plan on planet Earth. Um, This whole concept, you remember one of the titles of Messiah in the Pentateuch is the Angel of the Lord. The Malach Yahweh. That Hebrew word for Malach, it has the connotation of someone who's sent to do a job, to get a job done. Someone who's sent with a specific goal-oriented task in mind. It actually has the idea of being an executive. An executive is someone who executes a plan, who oversees it, right? So I like to, I think to, I like to think about Yeshua like that. Yeshua is the Father's top executive, and um, that's very that's very true in this case also. So before we look at that, I want to point something out. In Revelation chapter one, it establishes the absolute authority of Yeshua. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, it establishes that Yeshua is passionate for His people and His relationship with His community on planet Earth is at the center of His heart. It's what He thinks about. So, you know, some of the first words in the book of Revelation are what He has to say to various congregations in various areas. Then, in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, it establishes very clearly that God is... Sovereign over history. He is involved in the affairs of the world. He is an authority over international happenings. And Yeshua is the one who executes stuff on planet Earth. And it's only after establishing that that he begins to say, and then all of this horrible stuff is happening on planet Earth. And I appreciate that because Genevieve and I were talking about that. Sometimes when we read Revelation or we see movies about it, it's freaky. Really. It's like, everything's dark, we're going to die, and this is going to be awful. And it's kind of, it's scary. Like, for a lot of people, they don't want to read Revelation because it's scary. And I just appreciate the fact that the first five, how many, five, five chapters of Revelation establish very clearly, it sets the context, eh? And it makes it a little less scary. So, um, having said that, I'll give you a little, little, um, oh yeah, the, a little overview of, of, of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. 
describe a movement of military conquest, probably a religious movement, uh, because it talks about being dressed in white, maybe a religion that claims righteousness and has a high level of self-righteousness. I'm not actually going to be like, I think that this is going to happen in this group, or that this movement has already happened. I'm not going to go there, because I just want to give you an overview. Um, Something we discussed at the very beginning is that this is the book of the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. So, you know, primarily this book is about worshipping Yeshua. It's about seeing that he is in authority over international affairs and even massive disasters that happen around the globe. Yeah. In, in um, 6, 3 to 4, it talks about uncontrollable chaos and violence. It's the second one. Um, third one, 6, 5 to 6, widespread inflation and food shortages. And then finally, in 6, 7 to 8, the fourth one, it lists four things. Famine, plague, beasts, and the sword. I, I, I think I should just check that to make sure. Yeah, war. Yeah, war. yeah right. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. Um, these four, the, um, I think you could call them primary methods of, of, of bringing justice, um, are listed in Deuteronomy, the Song of Moses in Parashah ha- Ha'azinu. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 23 to 25, I'm not going to read them right now, but it's just interesting that these are listed in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, and they're also listed explicitly in Ezekiel chapter 14. In Ezekiel chapter 14, uh, he always speaks to the prophet and he says, you know, if I bring this judgment and um, Noah, Daniel, and Job were around, they would only be able to save themselves by the righteousness. They wouldn't even be able to save their families. And uh, then he goes on to say in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21, How much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague, to cut off man and beast from it. So he, uses, he lists those four again. They're like the primary ones. And then he goes on to say, But families will be saved, and sons and daughters will emerge alive. It, it, it's, a very, it's a very encouraging prophecy, actually. So um, we, can, we can take a cue from that. You know, when we read these passages about judgment hitting planet Earth, Psalm 91 is never going to be more true than it will be in times of the judgment of God. Because the judgment of God isn't just like a nuclear weapon that wipes out a civilization in general necessarily. It's more like a sniper. And it's very targeted, is, is, is often the case. And uh, we see that there. So just like we have Noah, who was rescued from global cataclysm because he was righteous through faith. Just like we have um, Daniel and his friends who survived the exile in Babylon in severe opposition. Lions with, with that um, bone-crunching power. Remember Daniel in, in the cave? Or um, his friends who were literally thrown into fire. Um, or Job, who survived like the fury of Satan himself unleashed upon him. These people survived. And Ezekiel 14 is, say, is, is referencing this. And, and it's saying like, there will be people whose righteousness will not just deliver them, but their families also. In times of judgment on, on Jerusalem and Israel. And I assume based on Revelation chapter 6 on a global level also. Um, 6 verse 8 specifies that with this last one... Um, it wipes out a quarter of the world's population. Yeah. It decimates 25% of the people living on the globe. Uh, today, if you were to crunch that number, that would be one and a half billion people. I don't know if this was a past thing or a future thing. If it's a future thing, that's one and a half billion people gone, just with that one thing. 
And I, I think it's going to be future, personally. So, you know, later on it talks about the hor- whatever the, this, this um, massive army from the east coming, and they wipe out another third of the world's population, which would be, if you have 4.5 billion people left, another third is another 1.5 billion people from that 4.5. That's three. So, I mean, if these things are both futuristic... And let's say they, and you're dealing with a population around 6 billion, by the time Yeshua comes back, half the people on planet Earth right now won't be around anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll, we'll look at a passage where Yeshua talked about that actually in, um, in, in just a minute. Actually, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just quote it. You know, in Matthew chapter 24, Yeshua said, like, if those days had not been cut short, no flesh would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days were shortened. So Yeshua is saying like, everybody on the planet would be gone if it wasn't curtailed by the Holy One for the sake of, of the elect, uh, God's chosen people. In um, 7 verse 3, we see there's, um, there's like a holding back of some things that are going to hit planet Earth until God's bond servants can be sealed. And uh, the concept of a bondservant, you have to go back to the Torah to understand it. Remember the slave who's like, I love my master, I'm going to serve him forever, and he gets his, his ear like nailed to the mezuzah, to the doorpost, and, uh, and then he serves his master forever. That's the idea of bondservant. We have, we have to understand the Torah. It lists these guys and describes them in more detail later, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about these guys. It gives some like little distinctives later in, in the book. But for now, we can just take note of a couple things. Um, number one, they are from Israel, so they identify with national Israel. And uh, number two, there's bond servants, and they're sealed by him. So like the, the concept of being a bond servant, being sealed by him, it's like you're a serious disciple. You, you have a very high level of commitment to the master. You're in it for keeps. In your translation, does it say bond servant? Uh, yeah, NASB renders it bond servant. How, is, how does yours uh, read? It just says servant. Servant, okay. Yeah, so. It's the concept of a slave, too, actually. And I, I like the concept of a slave. Mm-hmm. Like, I like, I like the concept, I am a willing slave of Yeshua. Like, he owns me. Exactly. So when I wake up in the morning, my only concern is to do the bidding of my master. Because I don't even belong to myself. And, you know, I'm like... I, I really love that. I found a lot of freedom in that, that mentality. Um, cults love this verse, this 144,000 thing. You know, um, Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, of course that's going to be us because we're, we're, we're like, we have the market cornered on God, basically, and um, on the truth and everything else. Um, Seventh-day Adventists believe that they are going to be the 144,000 because they apparently are spiritual Israel. Uh, it's, it's, it's important to note that Nowhere in the New Testament is the term spiritual Israel used. All right? So that's not a biblical term. There is one place where Paul talks about Israel according to the flesh, which as you know means physical Israel. So for Paul, he, he did understand the concept of there being physical Israel. And then maybe on a spiritual level there was more to Israel. Maybe believers from the nations would be part of that broader entity of Israel. But it's just important to note, nowhere does it actually talk about spiritual Israel. So when cults start saying, well, we're spiritual Israel and we've replaced Israel, just excuse them. They're not even using biblical terminology. That's um, what the majority of the church does. Yeah. Oh, twelve tribers. I don't know if you've encountered any twelve tribers. It's another replacement theology thing with saying, we're going to be the 144,000. Um, just take this as being literal, okay? 
Israel is Israel. Yes. Israel is Israel. Period. Um, that was and that was the context. Yeah, in in distinct whole, tribes. That's the whole teaching on that whole area. Yeah. Now, now some people would say, okay, so that means they're all going to be Jews. Uh, I believe that some of them will definitely be Jewish. Um, what does that mean? It means at least some of these guys are going to emerge from the Messianic Jewish movement. Does that make sense? I think we could infer that. Because um, these guys, at least some of them are going to be Jewish. They're going to be Jewish believers in Yeshua. And where do you find almost all Jewish believers in Yeshua? In the Messianic Jewish movement. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm, an, I'm watching the Messianic Jewish movement to see where it goes and to see what God does in the parameters of the Messianic Jewish movement. Um, are they all going to be Jewish? I don't think so. Um, there are, you know, well, there's the, whole, there's the whole concept of like the northern tribes being scattered into the nations. God says in Amos that they would all be scattered into every single nation, and yet he said not one of them would be lost. So, in other words, God knows who's who, and we don't really have to know. I think what we, our job is just to be committed disciples of Yeshua and to do what he's called us to do. And you know what? He can do all the rest later, eh? That's, that's my approach. I like to try and keep it simple. That's, that's powerful that he's the one who preserves his people too from idolatry. Huh. Yeah. In uh, 6 verse 9, it um, lists the souls under the altar. Uh, it's a reference to people who have been, what does it say? They're martyrs, slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they'd maintained. And um, actually, this is interesting because the altar represents like the sacrificial system offerings, eh? I, I, I think you could say that like as disciples of Yeshua, there's a theological connection between people who are martyred for their faith and the concept of offerings on the altar on, on some spiritual level. And I mean, that's, that's holy ground. I almost feared even tread there. I, I don't feel very qualified to even talk about persecution for the faith or the people that are, that are martyred. That's just not something... I mean, I've experienced. I've taken some flack, but nothing to that degree. Eh? Um, if you if you want to read some traditional Jewish texts about souls under the altar and understand the context of this better, I highly recommend David Stern's New Testament commentary. I'm not going to read it for you because he has several references, but um, this is a great book. I really love it. Jewish New Testament commentary by David Stern. He is like the patriarch of the Messianic Jewish movement. That's how one person introduced him at a, at a recent Messianic Jewish conference in the States. He lives in Israel. I think he's in his 80s. He did the translation of the complete Jewish Bible that we enjoy reading from. Anyway, um, if you want to get some great context, um, check, out, check out his book. Uh, something interesting about these um, tribes that are listed, I'll point out two things to you. Uh, firstly, Ephraim is called Joseph. So Ephraim and Joseph are interchangeable. Uh, secondly, there's no Dan. Dan isn't mentioned in these tribes. Somehow the tribe of Dan doesn't make it to the end of days and to being part of this, these like dangerous dudes for the kingdom. Um, why? I'll read to you something from Stern's commentary on that actually. D- Dan was notorious for something. Any of you guys know what he was notorious for? for specifically for idolatry though. Yeah. Because um, Dan led the nation of Israel in idolatry. Okay, here's, here's, here's a reference from a, a traditional Jewish source from a little after Yeshua's time. And it, um, it references Dan. Okay, Dan camped in the north, alright? It says the north. From there comes darkness. 
because the sun is in the south, is the idea. Why is this relevant to Dan? Because Dan darkened the world by idolatry. For King Jeroboam made two calves of gold, and idolatry is darkness. As it is said, their works are in the dark. Isaiah 29.15 Jeroboam went about all over Israel, but they wouldn't receive his teaching except for the tribe of Dan. As it is said, the king took counsel, made two calves of gold, and set the one in Dan. 1 Kings 12.20-29 This is why the Holy One commanded that Dan should set up his camp on the north. Numbers Rabbah 2.10 so, in the Jewish understanding, Dan was synonymous with idolatry. Um, if you read some of the early Christian texts, um, Dan, it was also believed to be the tribe that would ultimately produce the Antichrist. Um, he was not viewed as a, a good tribe because of idolatry. So, what, what could we learn from this on a practical level? The guys that were from Dan, that were tainted by idolatry, were excluded from being part of this group that was like this dangerous for the kingdom in the end of days. Um, what, what I think we can take from this on a practical level is like, let's be zealous to avoid any form of evil. Because, you know, even, even in our Christian tradition, we have things that did not come from the Bible. They came to us through the Roman Catholic Church and then through various Protestant denominations, but they didn't have the roots in their Bible. They had the roots in the pagan world and then were assimilated into the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm not going to say, like, everything is pagan, and I don't believe in being paganoid, if we could use that term, but what I am saying is I believe that there's a prophetic call going out today to the body of Messiah to say... Avoid Dan. Stay away from every form of idolatry. Stay away from every doctrine or every practice that might be traditional that has its roots in paganism or idolatry. Why not, why not play it safe and go and just throw yourself to the side of avoiding those things? You know? So that, that's, I think, one thing we can take from that on a, on a practical level. And what that looks like, we'll have to ask Yeshua. We'll have to let His Holy Spirit lead us because He does that. And... Um, and it, when, when he does that, it's a thing of freedom and of grace. And, uh, and it's beautiful. Okay, here's, here's the... In um, Revelation 7, 9, it, uh, it has a couple, a couple things stand out. We see people standing in white robes. They have palm branches in their hands. Um, if you observe like the biblical festivals, the fall, the fall appointed times, traditionally you wear white on Yom Kippur. And what do you do on Sukkot? Like four or five days later? Palm branches. So this is definitely an allusion in the book of Revelation to the fall festivals, to, to the appointed times of, of uh, Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And of course, when you, when you begin to really get into the prophecy, you have it like, these fall festivals are all about the second coming of Messiah. They're all about the return of our King. So let's remember that as we, uh, as we approach those days. Um, okay, 7.13, a question is asked about this huge throng of people. You can't even count them. There's so many from every nation, from all the languages. It says, um, the elder says, who are these clothed in white robes? Who are they and where have they come from? And uh, he gives the best answer. He says, sir, you know. It's a good answer. Sir, you know. Why don't you tell me? And then he says, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And then he gives some really beautiful promises for them, for their experience in the Messianic era uh, with Yeshua. And I just wanted to look at two things there from that. The idea of the Great Tribulation, that means like the Great Trouble. In Hebrew, it's Tzarah Gedolah. Everybody say Tzarah Gedolah. Yeah, Tzarah is trouble, eh? Tzarah, trouble. Actually, Mitzrayim, the nation of Egypt in Hebrew means like 
double trouble. Literally. That's what it means. So there might be a connection like eschatologically between Egypt and the Torah and, um, and the Great Tribulation as the idea of like persecution and distress also. And uh, Yeshua is the first one to mention this like with that term Great Tribulation in Matthew 24, 21 and 22. Um, I can turn there and read it to you or if you want you can turn there too. Matthew 24, verse um, 21. Yeshua says, Then there will be a great tribulation, a tzaragadullah, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, or ever will. So it will be like the greatest tribulation, the biggest trouble that has ever happened for Israel. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here's the Messiah, don't believe him. And he goes on, on into that. Um... You know, there's a, there's a question out there about whether God's people will be raptured out before the Great Tribulation or whether we're going to go through it. And I would say that's not one of those doctrines that are like the core doctrines of our faith either way. I think there's, there's room to discuss that. You know, my personal opinion is that we'll be going through the Great Tribulation as the body Messiah, as the people of God, um, for a couple of reasons. When I see this verse, it says, the people who went through the Great Tribulation were believers, and it wasn't just Israel. It lists Gentile believers, like innumerable numbers. So, you know, in, in the, the concept of, in the dispensational concept of the pre-tribulation rapture, you have, um, in Second Thessalonians 2, it talks about him who restrains being taken out of the way. And uh, the understanding is often, okay, that's the Holy Spirit. So, you know, the secret rapture happens and all the believers disappear along with the Holy Spirit. And then with the Holy Spirit out of the way, the Antichrist can surface and can just run wild and, and, um, and can have his way. And here's, 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 my, here's the catch with this, though. My hesitancy would be is, it says here that it's not just the 144,000, it's not just Jewish guys who go through the Great Tribulation. It also says the nation, there are Gentile believers from every nation who go through it. And if all the believers disappear at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, and the Holy Spirit disappears with them, how are all these people supposed to fight the anti-Messiah? How are they supposed to resist the beast? How are they supposed to come through it with flying colors? How can you even become a believer without the Holy Spirit? I mean, it takes the Holy Spirit to regenerate you, hey? Um, what, what, do we read in, what do we read in Titus chapter 3, verse 5? It says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit who makes believers believers, who, re, who regenerates us. So, you know, based on texts like that, I, I personally am getting psychologically geared up to face persecution, to go through the Great Tribulation, if it happens in my era, but I'm also living every day as if Yeshua could come back at any moment. And I think, you know, I think I, I'm, I'm kind of playing it safe on both levels, you know, because he did say, live like I'm going to come back at any moment, because you don't know when I'm going to be here. But on the other hand, he said, you will face trouble in this world, so be ready to face trouble. So... That's, that's my practical approach, you know. Some people get like really caught up in like, who is the beast going to be? And how are all these things going to play out? And we get all of our charts with end time prophecies and all the days. And I even had a dream last night where like someone that we know is like, you know, I believe that Yeshua is going to come back on this day. And I was like, I think Yeshua is going to come back in 2000. I was just kind of being tongue in cheek in my dream. I was like, I think Yeshua is going to come back in 2114. And if he wants to come back earlier, I was just, I just, just kind of being silly in my dream. But then I was saying, and then all these other people in the room, and they were all like, well, I think he's going to come back on this day, because blah, blah, blah. 
And I said to Genevieve, man, this would make a great like game show. I believe Jesus is coming back whenever. I don't know. Anyway, that was... I, I dream about interesting things. My, my approach right now is like, I have a mission today and this week. And I'm just passionate to do what I'm called to do right now. You know, like loving my family, being there for them, reaching out to our community in this area, practicing the Torah in my own life, worshiping and being strong in prayer every day. You know what? There are some people and they spend hours like obsessing over Bible prophecy and they have no prayer lives. And their marriages are in shambles. And they have pathetic relationships with their kids. And that's so wrong. That's missing the point of the book of Revelation. If you ask me, eh? So that's, that's kind of where, where, where I'm at with it. Um, these are some beautiful promises to keep in mind for when we do go through hard times. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with one thought from the Torah. It's uh, something I had a lot of fun with with Tirza. I was sharing with you guys, I've begun reading the Torah to Tirza after supper. We'll go sit on the bed and we'll, like, we'll read a little passage in Hebrew. So we'll go through it word by word and I'll break down words for her and explain them and act them out and we'll make up little stories based on, the, based on what we read. And I, I discovered drawing this week. So after, it's so much funner, and Tirza likes it so much more. So now after, we'll read a little passage, like we'll read a mitzvah, and then I'll draw it out. I'll be like, well, here's Tirza, and here's Abba, and then here's a guy, and we're going to hire him for the day. And then the Torah says to give him his wages at the end of the day. So he can, go home, he can go and buy some bread at the store, and then he can go home and feed his children. So we'll draw all these little stories, and it's so much more fun. Hey, Tirza? <laughs> yeah. So th- this is one that we that we got into. Uh, if you let's look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter twenty-two, verses one to four, and uh, we we read this in our reading, so I won't read it all. But it's basically where it says, if you encounter, let's say, some livestock that your brother owns, and when it says brother here, it's talking about like a fellow person in the nation of Israel. Uh, NASB renders it countryman, and uh, when you see something. Lost, uh, don't just ignore it. Um, go and get it and bring it back to him. Return it to him. And if he's far away or you don't even know him, then you take it to your barn and feed it and wait for him to come and try and find it. So, very practical. Tears and I had a lot of fun with this one drawing. Um, oh, yeah, Tears' uncle Colin, he lost his ox. And so we found his ox, so we put it in the barn, and we were feeding it. And then finally, Uncle Colin came looking for it, and he, he found his ox. And it was a lot of fun. But um, I, I think there's a deeper meaning here that can apply very much to us. Uh, we have brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah. And we in the body of Messiah have lost some things over the centuries. Paul, we talked about this in Ephesians 2. There was this understanding that we are all part of Israel. That the covenants of God are a collective heritage. And uh, when you read the history of the early church, everybody did Passover, for instance. It wasn't until the 100s with the Quartodeciman controversy that people began doing Easter. Before then, it was just Passover. That's what, that's what the body of Messiah did. Um, a lot of people celebrated Shabbat. And we've lost touch with a lot of these things. It's like, it's like stuff that we've lost. And you know what? A lot of believers today, it's been so long. And the dark ages have been so dark that we, we've, we've, we have a coll- case of collective insomnia. We don't even remember what we've lost or what we've fallen away from. It's so bad that today if you do Passover, people will say, oh, you're going back under the law. You're going back. You know, that stuff's been done away with. That's the Old, Old, Old Testament. And it's like we've, for, we've forgotten the goodness of it. We've forgotten how it's all about Yeshua. We've, for, 
We've forgotten our heritage. It's stuff that we've lost. And so you know what? Maybe we haven't lost oxen and sheep. I'll get one second. Maybe we haven't lost oxen and sheep, but we've lost, the, we've lost God's festivals. We've lost the covenants. We've lost the understanding of Israel. And uh, you know what? What, what does he say? Return the stuff to them. So, you know, as a community, we're working to host Passover events, to reach out to our community, to do HISO, to do everything we can to return to the body Messiah that which was lost. And uh, what does it say? Some of your brothers, they're going to be really far away. Or they might not even know that they lost their livestock. So what do you do? Just, he says, bring it into your home. Bring it into your home and keep it until he comes looking. All right? So I'm sure you've encountered this. You have people that are like, they don't understand you and they don't really want to hear it. Okay? They don't want to know why you're doing some of the stuff you're doing. It's like they're far away or they don't know that they lost it. So what do you do? According to this passage, a really good strategy would be to bring it into your home. So you know what? If you're doing Shabbat, do Shabbat in your home and have a great time with it. If you're celebrating the festivals, bring it into your home and just, just have a great time with it. And you know what? At the right time, that person is going to wake up. Yeshua is going to do whatever He wants to do in their lives. And they just might come looking. And because they, and because they know that some of that stuff that was lost in the early church, some of that stuff is in your home, they might come by your place. And they might have some questions. So I really like that approach because it frees us up. Some people, they discover the Torah and they're like, we all need to go back to this right now! And they go out there, it's kind of evangelistic, and you end up like just turning people off and shutting people down, and people, like, it happens, you know? And, and here's, here's an approach that I think might be a little better because it leaves room for Yeshua to do what He wants with His people, and it leaves room for the Holy Spirit to do the awakening and to raise the questions in people's minds in His timing. So on a practical level, that's, that's what I get from this passage about, um, about the ox and the sheep that are lost. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.